0: I want to begin this morning by relating to you one of the most ridiculous stories that I have ever read. And I think you'll agree. The amazing thing about this story is that it's very ancient and that a lot of people, in fact, a whole civilization of people actually believed it. Really unbelievable. It comes out of Greek mythology. And it's about the great God, Zeus. The Greeks said that Zeus gave birth to a son in a very unusual way. It would have to be unusual since Zeus was a male God. Story went like this. There was a goddess by the name of Semele. And she had in her womb a little God. Zeus confronted Semele, and Zeus is supposed to be the greatest of all gods. And Zeus had this sort of glowing, incandescent, burning glory. And when Semele got too close to Zeus, she got incinerated. She got burned up. By the way, Zeus had told her not to come and see him, but she insisted on coming to see him, and so she did it to herself, the story goes. Well, Zeus uh, wanted her to be burned up, but he didn't want the little child in her womb to be burned up. So, somehow, Zeus reached into her womb and got that little child out. And get this. Sewed that little child into his thigh. Until the time the child was to be born. This little god that was now sewn into Zeus's thigh was supposed to be the world ruler. But something really tragic happened. When uh, Zeus's thigh gave birth to this little god, (laughs) this little god was immediately kidnapped by the Titans. And when they got this little god, they were sort of anti-Zeus, And so they ripped the baby limb from limb, cooked it, and ate it. But again, Zeus to the rescue. Only this time, he just rescued the little baby's heart. And then he swallowed it. you ready for this? And it became reborn as the god Dionysius. Zeus then blasted the titans from the face of the earth. And all that was left of the titans was ashes. And out of the ashes, the human race was created. You buy it? Ridiculous? Asinine? Nevertheless, many people, a whole culture of people, believed it. So what you had was a human race born out of the ashes of a bunch of blasted titans and this one god, Dionysius. Dionysius then invented a religion, as all gods do, so they can be worshipped. And Dionysius invented a religion, and the form of worship in his religion was through ecstasy and emotion. The Greek terms, ecstasia and enthusiasmas. And this religion saturated the Greek and Roman world. The worshipers ate the flesh of the mystic bull, which was some kind of sacrificial animal offered to Dionysius. They committed unbelievable atrocities with human private parts. They worshipped sexual parts. They created orgies and sexual perversion And all kinds of scandalous associations and relationships. And the common way to address Dionysius was, come thou Savior. The cult of Dionysius became recognized mostly for its drunkenness, sexual perversion, wild music, and frantic, frenetic, ecstatic dancing. Euripides wrote about it and said it was the most horrifying ritual known to man. Dionysius eventually became known as the god of orgies. And his Roman name was Bacchus. Have you ever heard that? From which we get Bacchanalian feasts. Bacchus was the god of wine and the god of sex. And along with Bacchus came these nymphs and satyrs and ecstatic orgies of demonic possession. This became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. And it extended all the way to the perimeters of the empire. I'll never forget standing one day in the city of Baalbek. Baalbek is about as far east into the Middle East as the Roman Empire ever went. It is Far east from Damascus, way into the Middle East. I stood in Bacchus Temple in the city of Baalbek, named after Baal. And the temple still stands from these days. And you see these pillars that rise up and hold the great the columns, I should say, that hold these great massive structures on which the roof was laid. And all the way winding up these columns and these pillars... Our grapevines celebrating wine, celebrating the god Bacchus. In the middle of the temple, the whole floor descends to a huge pit, which was where the people vomited and then went back to drink more and eat more. An unbelievable experience. Prostitution, horrible orgies. And the key to all of it was drunkenness. What turned the whole thing on was drunkenness. In fact, they believed... That when you became drunk, you ascended to commune with Dionysius. You could not commune with him in a sober state. And so you came and you got yourself totally drunk to the point where you were vomiting and regurgitating and going back and even consuming more. And in that passion of alcoholism, you indulged in sexual orgies and perversions and wild music and the whole thing. And that was known as a Bacchanalian feast or the worship of Dionysius. The the impact of this so had touched the Roman and Greek culture that it became a dominant form of religion. Now, with that in mind, I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is a familiar portion of Scripture and one that is very instructive for us. In Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to look with me at verse 18. Here Paul writes to Christians not only in Ephesus, but we believe the Ephesian letter was a circular letter that went to Christians all over the the world that had been so influenced by Rome and Greece. But in verse 18 it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Now, from what I just told you, does that verse take on a little new meaning for you? What is he saying here? He is saying if you want to commune with the true God, if you really want to ascend into intimacy with deity, don't get drunk like they do in the feasts that you're used to. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see it? He's writing against the background of his own contemporary religious culture. They had come to the conviction in that culture that they would ascend to the level of communion with the gods if they became drunk. I remember when Timothy Leary espoused that back in the 60s when he was saying that when you get high on drugs, you ascend to communion with God. That has been advocated for centuries in Hinduism, in Eastern religions among the swamis and the maharishis and those people who, by means of drugs, wanted to induce a religious ecstasy. That has been espoused in South America with the use of peyote, which was a drug, a hallucinatory drug, which Indians took and believed they were ascending into a supernatural experience. You want to really have a supernatural experience, Paul says? You want to really ascend to a level of communing with God? Don't get drunk. That's just dissipation. That's the opposite direction. That takes you down. You want to go up, be what? Filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I want to talk to you a little bit about being filled with the Spirit this morning and on Wednesday. And we'll just cut it off wherever we need to today and pick it up on Wednesday. But I want to give you basically three things to look at. As we examine this passage, all right? Just three simple things. First of all, the command. That's where we're going to start. The command. Then we're going to talk about two others. But let's just leave it at that for this moment. Look back at verse 18. This is a command. Do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Back up to verse 17 for a moment, would you? Verse 17 says, So then do not be foolish or stupid, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, if you don't understand the will of the Lord, what are you? Say it. Stupid. Okay, you have that choice. You can be stupid or you can know God's will. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, he's going to tell you what God's will is. Don't get drunk with wine. That is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That is dissipation. asotia." That means it is the wrong way. It is going down. It is destructive. The will of God, then, is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a command. That's a command. And I want to talk about that just in a practical sense. And then I want to talk about the results of that. Because the results are very, very important. The contrast between getting drunk and being filled with the Spirit leads to the command. Now, just to give you a little bit of a reminder, do you remember what it says in Galatians chapter 5 that the flesh lusts against what? The Spirit. So being filled with the Holy Spirit while it is a command is not easily obeyed. And so we need to understand whereof we speak. We must be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? Let's talk about the meaning of being filled, all right? And there's need for clarification at this point. Every Christian, and you've gotten this from basic theology class, every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit lives within you. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Romans 8, 9. If you didn't possess the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be a Christian. Conversely, if you possess the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian. That's the evidence of it. The Holy Spirit is called, by the way, in Ephesians 1, the Arabon. That's a marvelous Greek word. It means down payment. It means first installment. It means engagement ring. When you got saved, God gave you the down payment on your eternal destiny. God gave you the first installment on heavenly glory. And God gave you the engagement ring indicating that someday you would enter into the fullness of the marriage of the Lamb. That first installment down payment and marriage ring or engagement ring is the Holy Spirit. When you became a Christian, you received the earnest of the Spirit. The down payment, first installment, engagement ring, you became a possessor of the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the Corinthians, what? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. First Corinthians six. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in chapter six, he says, whatever you do with your body, you're dragging the Holy Spirit into it. And he says, if you were to go, for example, and engage yourself with a prostitute, you would join the spirit of Christ to that prostitute. You can no longer live independently. The spirit lives within you. First Corinthians 12 says we've all been made to drink of one spirit. So every believer has living in him or her the Holy Spirit. Galatians 220 says I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet. Not I, but Christ lives where in me in his spirit. It's not the physical Christ, not the body of Christ, but the spirit of Christ that lives within me. And so I possess the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, I just point out a couple of verses, chapter 7, verses 37 and 39. Now, on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Very explicit statement. If you believe in Him, you receive the Spirit, and from the Spirit within you flows rivers of living water. In other words, great blessing comes from the Spirit who resides in the believer. So we all have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. There is never a command in the Bible to be indwelt by the Spirit. Never a command. You already are. Never a command to be baptized in the Spirit. You already are. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ or through the agency of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ at salvation. Never a command to be sealed with the Spirit. That happened when you were saved. Your seal meant God put his stamp on you, said, that's mine, that's secure forever. No command to be indwelt, no command to be baptized, no command to be sealed. Those are facts done at salvation. There are seven seven references in the New Testament to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, none of them is in the imperative. None of them is a command. Anybody who comes along and says you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit doesn't understand the New Testament. But there is one command that we want to draw your attention to, and that is this one, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean? Well, in contrast to being controlled by alcohol, be controlled by the Spirit. just means that. Simple enough. Instead of being controlled by your passion, be controlled by the Spirit of God. Now, the actual Greek rendering of that statement would be, be being kept continuously filled with the Spirit. Be being kept continuously filled with the Spirit. It's a present passive. It's to be continuous. Moment by moment, by moment, by moment, by moment. It isn't something that zaps you and it's good for a week. It isn't something that zaps you and it's good for a year. It isn't something that zaps you and it's good for a lifetime. It's moment by moment, by moment, by moment, by moment. It's a daily reality. Now, when we think about being filled with something, we think about maybe a glass, you fill it up. Or a box, you fill it up. Or a can, you fill it up. But that's not what he's saying. He's not thinking about filling up something As much as filling through something. I want you to follow this because it's very, very basic to our Christian life. The term is used, for example, plerao, the term filling, is used of wind in the sails. It moves a ship along. It is being carried along. It isn't just something static. You dump it in. It is something that moves. Filled in that sense. The idea, first of all, is permeation. It's like... Salt. When you have salt on something, it flavors it. When you're filled with the Spirit, it'll flavor your whole life. It permeates you. But more than that, it moves you. It moves you along. Let me give you some illustrations. The same word, plerao, is used a number of times in the New Testament. And here's the way it's used. For example, in John 16:6, 6, it says, filled with sorrow. What does that mean? Literally, controlled by sorrow. You see, most of us in our life try to balance off things. We, we have a little sorrow over here, and, and, you know, we don't want to think about it too much. We have a little happiness over here, so we sort of balance it off. But if you can't balance it anymore, if something so sad happens, you go down on the sorrow side, and you are filled with sorrow. We understand that. I mean, if you sat in a corner and just tried to think up things to be sad about, you could probably become sad. I mean, you could think yourself into Sadness. But you don't do that. You you try to keep your balance. And so when things aren't looking too good, you try to find some way to balance that off. But when you are literally overpowered by some sorrow, you no longer control it. You are filled with sorrow. In Luke 5.26, it says, filled with fear. Uh, There are things to be afraid of. If you wanted to, you could sit in a corner until you were scared out of your wits. Just by thinking of all the things that could happen to you. All the potential things you ought to be afraid of. But you don't do that. As soon as you get a little fear in your heart, you try to think about what's positive and pull yourself back so you're not controlled by fear. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 11, it talks about being filled with madness, going completely wacky. Most of us try to avoid that as much as we possibly can also. But if we gave vent to everything we feel and everything we'd like to say every time we'd like to say it, everything we'd like to do every time we'd like to do it, well, people might think we'd lost our mind. Acts six, five talks about people who were filled with faith. Acts 5.3 talks about Ananias who was filled with Satan. It always means control to the point where their conduct is dictated by that power. And so what Paul is saying when you're being filled with the Spirit is that you are being totally controlled. It's not a balancing thing anymore. It's not a little bit of him and a little bit of you and a little bit of him and a little bit of you. It's controlled by the Holy Spirit and you become non-existent in that factor. It's total control so that a certain kind of response is generated. To be filled with the Spirit, then, young people, simply means my life is under the controlling influence of the Spirit of God who is moving me along a certain path of obedience. That's it. And you can possess the Holy Spirit and not be controlled by Him, right? And that takes you into Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about not functioning in the flesh, but functioning in the spirit. It says walk in the spirit, which is just another way of saying be controlled by the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So you have this battle in your life, the flesh against the spirit, and they war against each other. And the believer who is controlled by the Holy Spirit is being moved along a certain path of obedience in the direction that God desires. And when that happens, two things result. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And the deeds of the Spirit, which are the deeds of righteousness. So Paul says, look, you want to reach God? You want to ascend to another level? You want to get beyond the mundane and beyond the earthly and beyond the worldly? Don't get drunk. That's not going to tune you into God. That's not going to take you up. It's going to take you down. That's asotia. That's dissipation. What's going to take you up is to be under the controlling influence of the Spirit of God who moves you along the path that God would have you to go and produces in you the fruit of the Spirit, which is attitudinal, and then the conduct of the Spirit, which is action. Now, let me ask a second and important question. That's what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The second question is how does it happen? How does it happen? Well, I don't think anything in the Scripture says you need to pray for it. I don't think anything in the Scripture says you need to tarry for it. I don't think anything says you need to seek it. I don't see anything that says you need to ask for it. It is a command, not a prayer request. Did you get that? It is a command, not a prayer request which means that it is readily and instantaneously and momentarily available to any believer. To any believer. But but how does it happen? Well, let me give you a parallel. You, You will notice here in verse 18 it says... Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it says in verses 19 and 20, the result is speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, with that in mind, look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And you'll see a very interesting parallel here. Colossians 3:16 says, "Let the word of Christ, scripture, richly dwell within you with all wisdom" Teaching and admonishing one another with, here we go with the same list, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And then immediately, wives, be subject to your husbands. And you get right into the submission thing. It's an identical and parallel passage to Ephesians. The only difference is, in Ephesians it says, be filled with the Spirit. And here it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We therefore concur that... Being filled with the Spirit means letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's it. To be controlled by the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word. And you don't need to get very mystical. You say, well, I want to be controlled by the Spirit, but that sounds so mystical. Well, that takes the mysticism out of it. To be controlled by the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word, which is the result of the Word richly dwelling in you. And I... I couldn't say it any more simply than Paul has said it in those two passages. If you want to have a life controlled by the Holy Spirit, then you must allow the Word of God to dwell richly in your life. There aren't any real mystical approaches to this. It's a matter of the effort, the time, the energy, the thoughtfulness, the meditation that you give to the Word of God. Okay? That's it. There's no really other... Way to say it. As you commit yourself to the richness of Scripture and you pour it into your life, you find that that begins to control your behavior. That's what causes you to yield to the Spirit. I can give you simply a personal illustration. Throughout my life, I've struggled with the same things you struggle with. When I was in college, in your age, I struggled with the very same things that you struggle with to the very degree, one way or another, that you struggle with them. All of the same difficulties, all of the same anxieties, all of the same temptations, all of the same strong desires, all of the same questions and doubts and fears, and all of those things that are part of life, we all struggle with. And the battle against the flesh is always a raging battle. But the longer I have studied the Word of God and the longer I have planted the Word in my heart that I might not sin against God, as the psalmist said, the longer I have poured the Word richly into my life the more easily does the Spirit of God take control of my life because I yield myself to the truth. You see that? You cannot yield yourself to the Spirit unless you can yield yourself to the truth. I cannot yield control to the Spirit unless I can yield control to the Word of Christ, which reflects the will of the Spirit. They're inseparable. In the fullest sense... I have to commit myself to the Spirit of God with a willing heart and at the same time to the principles of the Word of God with a willing heart. Now, that's just the basic definition of being filled with the Spirit. What I really want to talk to you about is the consequences. So will you look with me at verses 19 and 20? That was just the introduction. I want to talk about the consequences. Verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, And spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I want to talk about singing. I want to talk about saying thanks. And I want to talk about submitting. Now, let me give you a perspective here, okay? Paul says there are three immediate Results in a spirit-filled life. So let me give you a little idea here. If you see these things in your life, what can you conclude? What can you conclude? It's a spirit-filled life. It'll produce three things. Singing, saying thanks, and submitting. Let me translate that into three words that make real sense. Joy, thankfulness, and humility. You show me a spirit-filled person, I'll show you a person who's characterized by joy. Doesn't matter what the circumstances. Gratitude. Doesn't matter what the circumstances. Humility. Those three spiritual virtues are the evidence of a spirit-filled life. Very, very basic. But as these unfold in this passage, they unfold in a very, very rich way. This whole matter of music comes immediately into play. And I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible has so much to say about music. And here it says that the proper kind of music is the fruit of a spirit controlled life. I'm going to leave the details of those three things to Wednesday. And I think you'll be absolutely fascinated to understand how music relates to a spirit-filled life. But for this morning, let me just leave you with this thought, okay? You are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is what lifts you to a level in which you commune with God. Being filled with the Spirit is is the same as being dominated by the Word of God. Being filled with the Spirit results in joy... Gratitude and humility. Now, if you want to know where you are, start at the end. And ask yourself a few simple questions. Is my life characterized by joy? Do I find myself constantly rejoicing in the Lord? Is my life characterized by gratitude? Am I constantly ever and always thanking God for everything that He brings into my life, which works together for His own holy purpose and my ultimate good? And is my life characterized by humility, where I am much more concerned about others than I am myself, and more eager to submit to someone else and be subject to them than I am to have them submit to me? That's the stuff that God has given explicitly so you can monitor your life. If you look at your life and you say, hey, frankly, I'm an unhappy guy. Frankly, I'm a miserable girl. I got a lot of despair in my life. I'm very depressed. I'm not happy. The problem is, I'll give you one guilt-edge guarantee. You are not filled with what? The Spirit. Somebody else may say, Well, I don't like my circumstances. I'm not happy with where I am. I don't like my roommate. I don't know if I want to be here. And you just have that basically negative mentality that is not thankful. That's a spiritual problem. That is a deep, Seated spiritual problem. By the way, it's rather readily resolved by being filled with the Spirit, brought under the control of the Holy Spirit through the richly dwelling Word. And if uh, the biggest agenda in your life is your agenda, and your goal in life is to make everybody submit to you, that's evidence also that you're not being filled with the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the, everybody here in this environment. Was filled with joy, gratitude, and humility. This would be in some kind of place. And that's exactly what God wants. And God has made it possible. And it is not elusive, and it is not difficult, and you don't have to pray for it. It's not a prayer request, it's a command. Do it. By letting the Word dwell in you richly, which means what you know about the Word you submit to, and you yield your life to the Spirit of God. You have to do it moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. It's an ongoing process. Can we get in touch with that just as a principle? I used to use the illustration of a glove. Your life is like a glove. Properly understood. If I have a glove here, and I say, Glove? Go play the piano. What's a glove do? Doesn't do anything. The glove can't do anything. If I say, glove, go pick up that chair. Gloves don't do anything. If I put my hand in that glove and play the piano, what happens? Chaos. (laughs) And play the piano. (laughs) But you understand. If I put my hand in the glove, the the glove doesn't say, oh, hand, show me the way to go. No, it just goes. goes. Glove doesn't get pious or spiritual or make prayer requests. It just goes. As a believer, filled with the Spirit of God, you just go. You just function. You just function. You just move out. It's kind of like living in in the consciousness of Christ, which comes to you through the Word. This, this used to help me a lot to think of it this way. Uh, Peter is a good illustration. Peter, you remember, had a lot of problems. But one thing was true about Peter. Whenever he got next to Jesus Christ, he became dynamic, absolutely dynamic. I mean, he was floundering around all the time and sticking his foot in his mouth and saying the wrong thing and asking the wrong question and seeking the wrong position and and very often completely at odds with the purposes of Jesus Christ. But on occasion, when he got in the presence of Christ, he was pretty remarkable. For example, one time when he was there with Jesus Christ, you remember... Uh, Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? In Matthew chapter 16, Whom do men say that I am? And they said, Some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Jeremiah, and some say you're one of the prophets. And he said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where'd that come from? Jesus said, Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven did. God just took over his mouth. He wasn't even conscious of what he was doing. God took over his mouth. When he got near Jesus, he said amazing things. Another time we see him and he's uh, out on a boat and trying to cross the Sea of Galilee in a storm. And all of a sudden they look off in the distance and Jesus is walking on the water. Remember that? Here comes Jesus walking across the water, just tiptoeing across the white caps. And, uh, you know, Peter says, it is the Lord. And what does he do? I mean, he's so impulsive. He jumps out of the boat. And he starts walking toward Christ. And then, of course, a few steps out there, he realizes what he's done. Sort of sinks in. He looks down and says, whoa, (laughs) I'm in a bad place, you know. I mean, he knew about water. He'd fished all his life. He'd never walked on it before. And he realized all of a sudden, I'm in a place I can't handle. And you know what happens. He starts to sink and looks up and the Lord looks down and they walk back to the boat together. And you can imagine when they came back to the boat, he was leaning on the Lord saying, hi, guys. You know, just real cool. Like he did it every day. When he got near Christ, he said miraculous things. When he got near Christ, he did miraculous things. When he got near Christ, he had amazing courage. You remember how he denied Jesus Christ? The Bible says he followed afar off. And when he got afar off from Christ, he was a denier. But when he got next to Christ, you remember in the garden when they came to take Jesus Christ, he's standing next to Jesus. And here comes the whole bunch from Fort Antonius and all the chief priests and all of everybody else. And Peter, standing by Christ, feels invincible. Why? Because when he was near Christ, he said the miraculous. When he was near Christ, he did the miraculous, walking on water. And now he feels invincible. And so he's standing next to Christ, and he says, All right, Lord, I'll get the guys on the left, you get the guys on the right. And he grabs a sword and starts wailing away. And the Bible says he cut off Malchus' ear. Well, you know he wasn't going for his ear, he was going for his head. Malchus just had some reactions. He ducked and lost an ear. But Peter would have sliced his way through the whole crowd, invincible, feeling invincible because Jesus was there. It isn't long after that, though. He opens his mouth and doesn't say good things. He says bad things. He curses God, curses, and says, I don't know Christ. He doesn't do anything that's very miraculous. He denies Jesus Christ. He's a coward, and all that is so terrible. You say, What happened to Peter? Well, he got separated from Christ. Literally, when he was in the presence of Jesus, things happened. When he was out of the presence of Christ, he crumbled. Then you go into the book of Acts, and what happens? Now, this is very important. All of a sudden, you see Peter in the temple. What's he doing? Well, he preached a great sermon on Pentecost, first of all, didn't he? Again, he's saying the miraculous. And then you see him in the temple, and what's he doing? He's healing people, doing the miraculous. And then they take him prisoner, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, and they say, stop preaching. And he says, I will not, and he has miraculous courage. What happened? Jesus wasn't around. Jesus flew back in heaven. How is it that he was so pure in what he said and... So powerful in what he did and so courageous when he was near Christ. And now with Christ clear back in heaven after the ascension, how is it that again he's saying the miraculous, doing the miraculous and showing miraculous courage? I'll tell you why. Because after the day of Pentecost, the Bible says, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, listen to the conclusion. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is living every moment as if you were standing where? Right next to Christ. It is that pervasive Christ consciousness. And it comes when you are saturated with the Word of God so that you become so conscious of the reality of the presence of Christ that you yield to that controlling consciousness. And the result? Joy, gratitude, humility will mark your life. The rest for next time. Father, thank You for our time this morning, for the great truth in Your Word. Bless us now as we sing a final song and go our way. And may we be filled with the Spirit this day. In Jesus' name.